0: grade it was so long ago who can remember that far back two whole years
1: I remember all of like the old things like we used to read the book harry potter when it first came out and um we made curtains
0: harry potter curtains
1: and like they have like new curtains now and I, I look back at them and I'm like I look at them and I'm like wow you know it's changed and like I wish it was still there somehow
0: this is Kayla Hernandez in 7th grade at the Pulaski School here in Chicago. She says that she actually visits her 5th grade classroom, room 211, and her 5th grade teacher, Mrs. Chan, fairly often and reminisces about the past.
1: Recently, I went through the shelves and, like, the like our books are still there, like, Our America.
0: You're talking about the book, Our America.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm reminiscing about, like, when we used to read that book and um, how it, like, it showed... That's of racism.
0: Back in fifth grade, she covered her copy of the book with one of those paper book covers with a picture of NSYNC on it. It was her copy, though they're not allowed to write their name in the front of the books at her school.
1: They had numbers, and my number, I think, was like 30.
0: So you did find book number 30?
1: Yeah, I did. I saw the book, and it was just there without its paperback cover. and You know, everything that was mine is not mine anymore. I think like that's the hardest thing from switching to another grade, into another classroom, into another teacher. There's new environments and new and different things to learn, and well, old memories to leave behind.
0: Twenty years from now, thirty years from now, when you try to remember back to seventh grade, what do you think you're going to remember from this year?
1: Oh, I think I remember barely anything. <laughs>
0: Isn't that kind of strange, though, to think that you're going through all these experiences now that somehow are going to get wiped off the blackboard?
1: Yeah, but um, I even have that experience now. Like, I can't remember things from, like, second grade. I I see, like, some things. Like, I remember this kid, he wrote this Valentine card for me. It's like, you're pretty as a rose. I don't know, something like that. But, like, I can't remember teachers really well like I used to.
0: Do you feel sad about that, or is that okay?
1: I feel sad about that because you know it, it's a part of me. It's like you don't even remember what's happened. It's kind of hard because it's it was it's been a part of you.
0: When I asked Kayla which friends that she wouldn't remember at all someday, it wasn't hard for her to answer.
1: Cynthia, I'll probably forget um, Adilene. I'll probably probably forget Diana and Maria. I'll forget um, Eric Osorio. I'll forget a whole bunch of people.
0: She's not close to these kids or anything. But as she said their names, it was like watching them vaporize or something. Someday they'd just be gone, erased from the history of her life, like they had never been there in the first place. We forget most of everything. And then, sometimes, we go back and try to remember. And really, there is no predicting which people and places and moments we'll be able to get back. Dan and Maria... They could still make the cut. Well, from WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, It's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today in our program, Return to Childhood, what you find and what you do not find when you go back. Our show today in four acts. Act one, Once More with Feeling, in which Jonathan Katz answers the age-old question, what happens if you return to your childhood home and it's not so nice and the current owner tries to sell it to you? Act two, Punk in a gray flannel suit, in which a mortgage broker discovers that his old punk band from the 70s is hot in Japan, and decides to leave corporate life for a little bit and go back on tour. Act three: Ish bin ein mophead. A 34-year-old man investigates who he was at nine years old, and learns a thing or two that he would just as soon not remember. Act four: Every day I forget something else. A 10-year-old explains memory with the help of novelist Nicholson Baker. Stay with us. Act One. Once more with feeling. You may have heard of this series on public radio called Lost and Found Sound, which looks for old tapes to put on the radio. Well, one of the producers who works with that series, Valerie Velarde, knew a man named Jonathan Katz, who loves old tapes loves him so much that he says that it just puts him in a good mood just to be around audio equipment. Naturally, they got in touch. Katz is also a kind of minor celebrity in his own right. He did a TV series for a while about a cartoon psychiatrist called Dr. Katz. Anyway, Lost and Found Sound had Katz sit down with another one of their producers, a guy named Jay Allison, to play some of these old tapes of Katz's family. And after they did that, Katz then took his little journey into his childhood a step further. But... I am getting ahead of the story. Here is a few minutes first of him going through his old childhood tapes with Jay Allison.
2: Okay, now I'm going to put the headphones on and do some serious time traveling. Okay, hit play. I think even as a kid I knew how cheap tape was. If this was recorded, there would be phones in the background, somebody would be getting a fax. <clears throat> somebody else would be checking their email. The TV would be on. That's kind of sad. Can't hear a kid breathe like this. Boy, am I wasting tape. Oh <laughs>
0: Now it gives me great pleasure, on behalf of our entire congregation, to express our very good wishes to Mr. Sidney R. Katz and to Mrs. Katz upon the bar mitzvah this morning of their son Jonathan.
1: To the ten thousands of the clans of Israel. That's me. Verily, I give you good doctrine.
2: I said verily,
1: not my teaching. Bring us back to thee, O Lord, for we would return. Renew our days as of old.
2: I have a New York accent in Hebrew, which is pretty tough. Until I did my HBO special, this was the most money I ever got paid to perform live. I'm just going to move it ahead a little bit, just want to make sure. Whoa. Sorry about that.
1: We could always go to sleep <laughs> we're desperate. Uh, well, doesn't sound like too much fun. Nah. What are we having for dinner? Eating
3: food.
4: What kind of eating food? Say hi, kind of Okay, let's
1: hear this recording, okay? Oh man,
2: I have not changed one bit. That's what life is like in my house. We live, we videotape, and then we watch what we just did. I have this obnoxious habit now with my daughter and her friends, both daughters. They can just be sitting around with a bunch of friends, and I walk in with a tape recorder, and I go, "Okay, talent show. (laughs) You know, which if you're 17, is pretty uncomfortable.
0: (laughs) Jonathan Katz now joins us from his home studio in Boston. Jonathan, how much taping do
2: you do? Over the course of a week. Talent show. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I pretty much, uh, I'm always rolling. I'm recording something or listening to something. I'm surrounded by my past on audio tape. See, but how many hours of tape do you have there in your house? Do you I think? would say, you know, and it's very hard for me to, to give you an accurate estimate, but I would say 5,000 hours.
0: And how much of it have you actually gone back to?
2: Well, if I'm if I'm sitting in my in my office in my house writing something, mm-hmm. rather than going downstairs and having a cup of coffee, I'll put on an old reel-to-reel tape and see what I find.
0: Let's play uh, one one of the recent recordings you've made. Okay. Um, let me just
2: get this queued up. Now, when I see your picture hanging on the wall, it just reminds me of what could have been.
1: Same with me. That's what I was gonna say. Yeah.
2: And um, I still hope that maybe someday we can get together.
1: Same with me. And make
2: up for lost time.
1: Same with
2: me. And, um, uh, thinking All of the ways that, that I could have made
1: you stay.
0: It's an odd uh, choice of a subject for a
2: song to sing with your
0: nine-year-old daughter.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, you could the wheels on the bus go round and round only so many times.
3: You know? <laughs> you stay. But like, like a, a bird, you
1: have
0: After digging up uh, those old tapes and talking about them, you decided to get together with your sister Phyllis and return to your childhood home in Brooklyn. In, was it Sheepshead Bay? Um,
2: Sheepshead Bay was where we lived. My earliest childhood memories were of our house in Sheepshead Bay. And how long had it been since you'd been back? I don't think I'd been there since the 1950s. Wow. It was a it was a dirt road the last time I was there.
0: No. Yep. A part of Brooklyn was a dirt road in the nineteen fifties? It's true. We lived on a dirt X. road.
3: Why don't we turn right at Avenue Y and go past your school to Ocean Avenue, okay? Okay.
0: Just explain the setup in the car when you went uh when you went back to Brooklyn.
2: Who was there? I was driving with my sister Phyllis and an engineer.
3: God Marilyn Maybloom lived on whatever avenue it was.
0: So you drove back to the old neighborhood, and you right. drive to a series of different houses
2: that you had lived in.
0: What was it like to knock on these doors of, of these different houses trying to talk your way
2: in? It was, that was fun, and, and I, think my, I think Phyllis had a sort of a distorted view of my celebrity, that right. it was, was going to really impress people, the fact that I used to be a cartoon. Right, you say to one person after another,
0: I used to have this TV show, yeah. and n- not a one of them seems to have watched that show. No.
2: Who are you? Oh, my Do name is I'm, I'm Jonathan Katz. I, we used to live in this building. Oh. I had a TV show called Dr. Katz for a number of years, and I'm here with my sister Phyllis on a sentimental I mean, journey. we lived on the fifth floor of this building. Well,
3: if you'll excuse me, we're a little busy. Okay, okay I'm I, sorry. I, I was very innocent of you, okay. Okay. but we'll just go up. Thank you.
2: I guess the most amazing was this guy on 88th Street when he announced that he couldn't let us in because he's on an international call, <laughs> I know it
0: seems so archaic. <laughs>
2: yeah, like he was the first person to make contact with somebody from another country on the phone. Are
0: we help you? Oh, oh, ah. oh yes,
2: hi. Nice. You I'm on an international call, so please be quick, what is this about? We used to live here in
3: 1956
2: and we wanted to see the apartment. You no, know, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to my wife in Switzerland. Could we so. come back?
3: Would it be possible?
2: Um, yeah,
3: possibly. Thank Sorry, you. Okay. International. Every call makes an international
4: call.
3: It's something to show off about, is what I mean.
0: You finally get into one of the houses. W- mm-hmm. Was there a part of you that was surprised that, like, in some in some way, that that other people were living in the house? Oh, I was shocked.
2: I expected to see our furniture and, oddly enough, my parents, who, who were worried sick. Where have we been?
0: But of course, in a way, because that's the way it looked the last time you were there.
2: Right. I sort of think of my homes in Brooklyn, especially, as the sets of sitcoms. You know, that they're frozen in time. Yeah. But instead we found this guy, uh, Frank Mendez. And the reason he let us in, it wasn't his sentimentality, it's that it's on the market for, for $439,000, and it's a dump.
3: Okay. Oh. This, oh,
2: this he was very hospitable. He showed oh, us around. We were in the room where we, Phyllis and I shared a room until we moved to Manhattan. My sister Phyllis? We used
3: to live here. We lived in this,
2: in they this exact up place here. when we were... In 1949. Where, yeah.
3: Where's the bathroom you got locked in? It should be yeah. over here, right?
2: Yeah. 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 yeah, when I was a kid I got locked in the bathroom. I had to call the
3: fire department. Yeah, it's
2: the old bathroom. She remembered it as cozy, I remembered it as claustrophobic.
0: Let's talk about how you, how you got along with your sister uh, on this trip. I want to play you a
2: piece of tape. Okay.
3: We just passed her old school. There's a house similar school? to Which this, school, my though? old school. Did I, I go there? It 130, but you wouldn't remember that either. Do you, you, you want to
2: go by there on the way back?
3: But, yeah, maybe. We'll, we'll see. Let's head for our m- said mutual back, right. memories but first. But all these houses, there are beautiful private houses yeah. here, aren't there.
2: You know, I think if, I think if you dissect the, the dialogue, you can see that we, neither of us are, are really taking in what the other person is saying. And I'm pretty much making jokes and whether or not she, she hears them even, forget about it, but gets them.
3: Where's the theater? Is it still here? Do you remember how much it used to cost? Can,
2: right? can you sound a little younger and less Jewish when you ask that question? That's strange. We're very competitive, and especially about our past, it's almost like uh, revisionists. You know, she she wants her version of the past to be the one that's perceived as the truth.
0: What's the difference between her, your sister's version of the past and, and your
2: version of the past? I believe that there was a Second World War. <laughs> uh, no, I think that her version, the big difference was that she and I got along when we were kids.
0: She thinks that you got along. Yeah.
2: She thinks that we were a happier family than I think we were. I wonder if it's just that she was happier. That's possible. It's a nice, it's a nice interpretation. I expected to find some, some evidence of a happy childhood when in fact I couldn't really get along with my sister.
0: You know what's so strange about about this trip that you took back to the neighborhood is, is you're really um, dealing with the most potent um, psychological material possible. You know, you're going back to the place where you grew up. You haven't been there in decades. You'd think it would bring back a flood of memories and feelings,
2: and um, and nothing happens. It is odd. Well, you know, it's a little bit like this TV show that I made, and and I'm not trying to change the subject. I did a TV show recently about, it was called Alpha Force, mm. and the premise was it was six guys living in a bunker underneath Utah, um, all specialists in some field. I was an electronics specialist, and we were set up by the government to do covert operations in foreign countries, Yeah, but no one called. <laughs> we're just in the bunker no one's calling <laughs> so I suggested we start a book club um, and it's, that's kind of where we are now with this piece
0: <laughs> you didn't get what you wanted out of, out of your trip back home no what did you want? You said earlier, part of what you were looking for was just some sign that of, about whether things were happy when you were a kid. What would you have heard on, on these tapes or, or seen in the old neighborhood that, that would have given you that? You know,
2: that if, I, if I had been able to rip away at the wallpaper in that house and seen the words written by me, sweet God, life is so good. I mean, I, I look at my my 18-year-old daughter, and I see how unbelievably alive and happy she is. And I guess that's, a, that's the feeling that I'm looking for.
0: You mean when you, look, when you listen back for these tapes?
2: Yeah, that I'm looking for evidence that I, too, used to be that happy and alive. You know, looking at a black-and-white photograph of that house with my father and my mother and me and my cousins and my sister sitting on the steps might be more potent than actually sitting on those steps.
0: Comedian Jonathan Katz.
3: Brooklyn Road
5: I can still recall Smells of cooking in the always.
3: Rose drying in the doorways Back to, to
0: Punk in a Gray Flannel Suit David Philip is the president of a mortgage brokerage firm in Beverly Hills. As you might imagine, in Beverly Hills they handle rather large mortgages. He dresses neatly in beautiful clothes. He has clean-cut hair. But in the 1970s, in his native England, he was in a punk band called The Automatics, which was never really a big commercial success, but known and respected in the history of the punk movement there by people who care about these kinds of things. And last year, through an odd set of connections, he ended up revisiting his teenage years for the first time by going back on tour in a version of his band in Japan. Here is is how something like that happens.
5: I mentioned it to a client. And, and I said, well, you know, I, I'd played in, um, in a punk group when I, when I was a kid. And uh, he said, oh, really? And he's interested. And, and then uh, the next day he sent me a copy of, um, of an eBay auction and said, is this you? And I sort of, what, so it was. And I watched this auction and I watched the, the sort of price shoot through the roof, you know. And then I began to realise, wait a minute, <laughs> I'm collectible. Let's get down to brass tacks here. How much were you, you guys I think that pay? one actually went at $48. I, I particularly liked looking at, you know, all those sort of uh, other groups that were going at 25 cents. Um, you know, music bu- business uh, offerings along punk lines uh, that, you know, I thought, what a load of old nonsense at the time. And it was good to see that, uh, you know, they their, their records weren't valued years later. I mean, it was, it was... Wow. That history came out on the right side. Yes, that uh, there is a sort of Darwinism uh, in, in, uh, in record collecting. What happened next? I went to go and see Ricky, the drummer, and, and uh, Ricky collected everything, you know, and he very kindly lent me uh, these two scrapbooks. So I took pictures and and things out of there, and I just put it up on a had a friend put it up on a website, and um, then I got an email from Fifi in um, in Japan saying, you know, oh, I play in Japanese punk rock rap band, and uh, Fifi's a, a name of a person. Yes, mm-hmm. and uh, your record changed my life. Wow, uh, and he found out through the website that you know there was an unreleased album, so he asked you know if he could put me in touch with. Uh, Toshio Ijima of uh, bass records we, we struck up a deal and then they said well would you come over here and play some gigs to uh, you know, promote
0: so, so you go to tour, how old are you at that point? I'm 45
5: 45 years mm-hmm. old? Uh, A little bit of grey hair coming in, A little bit of grey hair coming mm-hmm. in. And, uh, and, and I really wasn't sure whether, um, you know, I'd still be able to do it. Because I hadn't played those songs in 22 years. You know, not in my shower, not to anyone. Uh, I mean, prior to being married, I mean, I remember dating women for, you know, a year who never knew that I played, had had ever played,
6: hmm.
0: you know. It wouldn't even come up.
5: It wouldn't come up, really. I mean, I'd have a guitar hanging around, but, the, you know, lots of other guys did, too. Would you ever pick up the guitar and play for yourself? Yes. I wrote a lot of songs for my dog during this period. <laughs> really? <laughs> Some of the titles would be We're Going to the Park was a big favourite <laughs> <laughs> To be followed by that hit, Who's a Good Boy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh what a good boy is actually uh... It is. <laughs> what a what a good boy. <laughs> So uh, we went over there, uh, October the 6th. I took my wife, which possibly was a a miscalculation, but... (laughs) No, it was a good thing to take my wife, because... uh, oh, You were approached by dozens of teenage girls? I was getting stopped on the street. So what
0: happened the first night you went on stage?
5: Well, there was just, you know, the announcement, the light, and sort of a moment's silence, which lasted forever. And then sort of out at the back I heard the opening riff of When the Tanks Roll Over Poland. And there was just this whole ignition of energy from the club in front. And all these kids just started going mad and it just clicked right in. like I was in an automatics cover band or something like that because it was so long ago I didn't feel that association as you know the writer because I wrote the material and all that I didn't have that association as the writer anymore see
0: but I would wonder if as you sing the songs the conviction of the
5: writing returns to you and you remember all the feelings of it did that happen it was a muscle memory it was there you know you know the movements are all locked in the lyric and the beat and the, and the parts You know, and as I played them, they all started to come out, and it was just like a sort of like being a marionette or something. You know, here you punch the air, you know, or there you sort of bring it. You know, remind the drummer to come down, and uh, you know, and here there you point at the uh, the the guitarist for the solo. You know, had you forgotten the thrill of being on stage? Yes, I'd forgotten what it was to, um, you know. Have the audience right there
0: before this had you ever performed a punk show sober
5: never well, um, unless I had uh, unless I was taking the antibiotics <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, not that's unless there's I was... so much information contained. it's such
0: a brief sentence <laughs> <laughs>
5: No, it actually—it was one of the great paradoxes, really. I suppose that uh, that it was great to do it sober.
0: Were there moments on stage where where, uh, where you
5: felt your age? where you just thought oh, uh, towards the end, you really feel yourself. You know, because it, 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 it's like a sauna up there. I mean, there's so much energy going around, and uh, you know, it, it's louder than bombs. Never, never, never go.
0: So your wife had never seen you do this before, there must have been a part of you which felt so
5: pleased that she could see it. Yes. I I felt kind of like, uh, you know, I'd become this other person. And um, when I was over there, my life over here seemed to have a sort of almost dreamlike substance and then of course as soon as i got back <laughs> the events in october in japan just you know began to assume that sort of mantle of dream i did 3 shows uh two in uh two in tokyo and one in kyoto and all three just just great All three sold out. In Kyoto, we set a club record for the largest attendance ever. It was so packed, we couldn't actually get off stage. The only way out was over. I had to sling myself over the audience, and they carried me on their hands back through the crowd and gently deposited me at the stage door. So this is your last gig? That was your last gig? Yes. Yes. And
0: and it ended with the entire audience lifting you up and and passing you bodily uh, out and
5: gently depositing you out out of the club. At the, well, not out of the club, but to the stage door. Yes. Wow. Well, it was amazing. I, I don't think I've ever really been lifted
0: by a mob of teenagers and people in their twenties. Um, what, what exactly is that like?
5: Um, well, in Kyoto. I felt pretty good about it. <laughs> I'm not sure how I would have felt about it in London in 1977, where the scene was incredibly violent. You know, whenever you played, you were, you were just as likely to get beaten up as you were to get paid. Describe what it was like to come back after the tour. It was hard for me to get motivated again uh, to do my business after the, um, uh, after the tour. It, it just wasn't as thrilling as being on a
0: stage in front of cheering. Well,
5: not many things are, and it's a bit like sort of you know, you know my my dad's generation. You know, after sort of you know growing up as a kid, you know being fired on and, and in, in, in you know World War Two and all that kind of stuff. It was it was kind of hard getting getting it up for uh, for you know working at the shipping in the shipping industry again. Shortly after I got back, um, Steve Lillywhite was in town. And that is? Uh, he's, he, he, he was the original producer, and he was also my roommate at the time that uh, all the automatic stuff was going on. Uh, and uh, now he's you know, incredibly successful. He does like You 2 Dave Matthews, and all that stuff. You know, and, and anyway, he was in town, and he had some time, and, and so we hung out together for a couple of days, and Hunter was off. Um, and, Hunter, your uh, wife? Yes, Hunter, my wife uh so um you know we got to hang out and we talked a little about the old days and he told me you know big paul from from specs uh uh does catering in uh hmm. you know a, a, and uh, nigel from the members is in australia now and uh, uh, and walter from the heartbreakers he's a stockbroker in manhattan uh so it was it was it, it, i i think i got to see we don't get what we deserve. You know, we get what we get and and we have to be okay with that. David Philp, lead singer of The
0: Automatics. Though he has not quit his day job, he has been recording in the studio lately and hopes to tour Germany in the fall. Why is it that the Axis powers are the ones who are going for this music right now? What is that about? Coming up, a famous novelist, an actress from the TV show Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the impossibility of time and memory, and a babysitter. It's action, 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 believe me, in just one minute, from Public Radio International, when our program continues. This American Life. i Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose some theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, Return to Childhood, stories of people revisiting the past, what they find there, what they do not find there. We have arrived at Act 3 of our show. And this act is the story of how one of the producers of this program made a decision to return to his childhood. Alex Bloomberg went searching for somebody named Susan Jordan, who he and his sister Kate and their parents knew for about a year when he was
7: growing up in Cincinnati. These are the things that I remember about Susan Jordan. Me and her sitting in the back room and telling her about the day camp I went to that summer. I can't get myself to shut up and they had alligators and snakes, I can hear myself telling her, and this one time, this one alligator got out and the counselor had to catch it, and on and on, like that. Me and Susan flipping through one of those time life books, rock and roll through the decades, the 60s. She has long brown hair, she's incredibly skinny. It's 1975, she's wearing bell-bottom Levi's, a faded jean jacket. She points to a picture of a bloated man in a powder-blue rhinestone jumpsuit, sitting cross-legged on a stage before a crowd of crying women. That's my favorite picture of Elvis, she says. This information seems somehow personal and important. Me and Susan riding in her car. I'm going through this phase where I'm trying to notice things. So when we pull up to a stoplight, I start trying to notice the guy on the motorcycle next to us. He apparently doesn't want to be noticed, especially by a peculiar nine-year-old staring at him through the passenger window. What are you looking at? He sneers. I turn around, fast, and face the dashboard. Did he say something to you? Susan asks. What did he say to you? Nothing. Uh, he didn't say anything. It's fine. Look, green light. Tell me what he said. What did he say to you? I stay silent. I know if I tell her what he said, she'll get out of the car and try to kick his ass, which scares me, but comforts me too. Susan Jordan was our babysitter. She watched my sister and me every day after school for a couple hours, until our parents got home from work. We didn't know any adults like her, and we loved her. The summer before I started fifth grade, after being with us for a year, Susan got another job. The last time I saw her was Christmas Eve, 1982. I'm 16, a cashier at Thriftway Foods, a supermarket in Cincinnati, where I lived. The place is packed. All 25 registers are going. People are lined up halfway to the back of the store. I look up, and there's Susan Jordan. She smiles. We talk. She doesn't have many items, so I check them through as slowly as I possibly can. I can't recall one thing we say to each other, although I remember being distinctly disappointed to hear that she's married. She hands me some kind of business card, her husband's probably, something having to do with the building of redwood decks. She seems happy. Meanwhile, there's a line of last-minute Christmas shoppers mounting behind her. I tell her to hold on. I'll try to get my break. We can catch up. She says, great, and steps aside. I keep signaling to my manager, but there's no one to relieve me. Five, ten, fifteen minutes pass. I keep glancing behind at Susan, making apologetic gestures. I can still remember her standing there, holding her one bag of groceries, smiling back at me. Finally, she taps me on the shoulder. I have to go, she says. But I come in here all the time. I'm sure I'll see you around. I worked at Thriftway for two more years. I never saw Susan Jordan again. It drives me crazy that I never saw her again. If I hadn't run into her at the store, I don't think I'd care. But somehow, having her play what to me seemed like a huge role in my life when I was a kid, and then getting just a taste of what it would be like to talk with her as a peer, I've never forgotten that moment. I know it's ridiculous, but after years of thinking about her, imagining what she's up to, wondering if she ever thinks about me, I decide to find her. (laughs) I start with my only lead, the one former employer of hers that I know. Hi, Mom.
8: Hi, Alex. Uh,
7: Do you want to know why I'm calling?
8: I do, I do.
7: You remember Susan Jordan, right?
8: Susan Jordan. Susan Jordan. Yes, it's ringing a bell, but I can't place
7: it. Uh, She was our babysitter?
8: Oh, okay. Chicken legs and mop head.
7: One of the many ideas that Susan introduced to our household was the concept of the nickname. I think that's all I want to say about chicken legs and mop head. I'd gone to my mother to fill in gaps in my memory of Susan, but she didn't remember much more than I did.
8: She was a babysitter that really had more of a relationship with you two than she did with us. She seemed to um, have a very meaningful relationship with you, almost the kind of uh, relationship that you might have with another adult. Uh, That was about the extent of it, and she never stayed around. When I came home, she was out of there.
7: What talking to my mom did do was make me look at my childhood memories from an adult perspective. Like, for example, what I remembered about her living situation.
8: I didn't get the impression that she was close to her family. I got the impression that she was very much out on her own very young I think she must have been in
7: the process of breaking with her own parents during that time. That's, that's, yeah, see, that's, my memory is that, you know, of, of like, she was in high school, right? She went to Withrow. Yeah, Mm mm-hmm. But, but I also remember her living on her, for some reason, I remember her own house.
8: Yeah.
7: And, um, the reason I thought that she lived by herself was we went to, we went to some. We went to her house or her boy. We had to go pick something up somewhere, and we were in her car, this big blue duster, I think it was. Uh-huh. And, and um, her boyfriend was there, and her and her boyfriend had let the cats out, uh-huh. and they were they were gone, and she was furious. And and I got in the car, and, and then she like slammed the door, and I think we peeled out, and he mm-hmm. was sort of standing, you know, he was he was sort of standing there and saying, you know, trying to trying to reason with her, and we were out of there.
8: Well, what did you think?
7: It made me. I think I felt sad for her. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking, and this is sort of in retrospect, but I think I had some sort of inkling of this idea at the time. I'm just, I'm just sort of now realizing it. But I think I remember thinking that he was one of the few people that she had in her life, and she couldn't even really depend on him.
8: Yeah, you were probably right. She was, she was a struggler. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you may have been um, at that point, at that moment, her only friend. You
7: know? My mom didn't have any idea where I could find Susan, which made things difficult because A, Susan Jordan is a very common name, and B, it's probably not her name anymore. I called the county court records department to find all the Susan Jordans married in Cincinnati. My mom asked a friend who worked for the city to search all the Cincinnati birth records. I contacted high school alumni associations. I asked friends at high-powered newspapers to run background checks. Finally, there was one former Susan Jordan who stood out. She seemed the right age. She was married and living in a Cincinnati suburb. She had a couple of kids. Her husband was a lawyer. I got her number from information. And it wasn't until I sat down to call her that it hit me. A phone call from someone you babysat 20 years ago might not be a welcome surprise, but in fact, strange and creepy. Here I am practicing sounding benign. One, two, one, two. Susan? Is this Susan Jordan? Is this Susan Jordan? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. Finally, I made the call. Hello? Hello. Uh, hi. Is this Susan? Yeah. Hi. Um, my name is Alex Bloomberg, and um, I'm calling from, from a radio program. Uh, uh-huh. called This American Life. Uh-huh. And um, I, this is a probably a very strange phone call to receive, but I was wondering, first of all, do you, do you remember me? No. It turns out there are a lot of Susan Jordans who don't remember me. A lot. One guy even called his ex-wife, a former Susan Jordan, and then called me back to tell me she'd never heard of me. I was getting nowhere by myself. So I contacted a professional. One Irving Botwinick a certified New York City private investigator. Three days after putting him on the case, I got a message saying he'd found her. I called him back.
8: I called her this morning early, Mm -hmm. uh, roughly around
4: Mm 7.30.
8: I said, good morning, I'd like to introduce myself. I said, uh, my name is so-and-so, and I'm a licensed private investigator in New York, and I'm looking for someone that used to live in Cincinnati and went to a particular school there, and her name at the time was Susan Jordan.
7: Uh-huh.
8: And she said, That's me. And I said, Okay. And I said, I, uh, Do you know anybody named uh, Alex Blumberg? And right away, she, you yeah, know, I babysat. <laughs> and um, the interesting part about the whole thing is she definitely likes you, remembers you, and uh, she's going to call you.
7: Hello, is this Susan? Yeah. This is Alex Bloomberg.
4: Hi, Alex. How you doing?
7: <laughs> I'm doing okay. How are you?
4: Fine. Did you get my email? I got your
7: email, yeah. Oh, and I, okay. I, and I, I, I called you at work. Oh, at Susan well, and I, so I talked for over three hours on the phone, is, is catching a, up, a, I mean, comparing notes. Up she asked a, about my sister or 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 and kids a, that used or to, or to live on the street and our old family dog. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. It was amazing how much she remembered and how much we remembered in common. Even small incidents, like the time that we were stopped at the traffic light. And I stared too long at the guy on the motorcycle.
4: I think I remember that. Was it on Erie
7: Avenue? Uh, probably, probably. And you said, did he say something to you? And I said, no, he didn't say anything to me. And you said, he said something to you, didn't? And you were about to get out of the car and <laughs> kick that guy's ass, as I'm sure.
4: <laughs> I think I can remember your face. I think you were sitting very still with your hands in your lap. Were you afraid?
7: I was terrified. I mean, <laughs> I, yeah. I didn't know that he would notice me, exactly. But, uh... <laughs> well, don't worry. But,
4: I, I would have taken him out. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I had no fear. I'm telling you.
7: Do you remember a time... Um, you know, we'd, it was like maybe... Six or seven or eight years after you babysat us, mm-hmm. um, and I was the working. Grocery store. Yeah. <laughs>
4: yeah, I remember. Yeah. <laughs> in Norwood, right? In Norwood,
7: right at the thriftway.
4: Yeah. <laughs> I remember. I guess you were you bagging my groceries at the, but I didn't recognize you.
7: I don't, I don't. And then
4: you told me who you were, and then I did.
7: Right. Right. I think you said mophead.
4: Head. <laughs> oh my gosh. I did warp you. <laughs> Do people still call you that?
7: No. <laughs> Susan got married when she was still in college and went to work for the phone company as a repair person. She spent the next 20 years or so hanging from a telephone pole, as she said. She hated it, but the money was good. Around the time her first marriage ended, she finally got up the courage to quit and find work using her degree. She now teaches at a special school for mentally ill children. She lives in Florida with her second husband, and she seems happy. Of course, when you dive back into the past like this, you find how partial and incomplete your memory is. First, there are the facts you get wrong. Turns out Susan had been a college freshman when she babysat us, not in high school like I thought. My sister remembered she'd ridden a motorcycle. Also not true. And the guy who she got in the fight with over the cats, who in my mind was her hairy 70s boyfriend, turned out to be her roommate's boyfriend. But besides the facts you change, they're the facts you completely omit. That fight over the cats? Susan had forgotten totally that I'd been there. And it was a little strange because my presence was the only thing she'd forgotten. Other details she remembered fine, even the names of the cats themselves.
4: Possum and Tom. (laughs) We were hillbillies, remember? (laughs) But, uh, (laughs) uh, But I can't imagine what I took you over there for.
7: I'm sure it was for you know I think we were just running errands but, you're so lucky <laughs> it's it's funny because when I, I when i like you know I remember these very particular incidents, and that was one of them and and probably the reason I remember it is because it seemed very significant to you. I think I sensed as a kid that that you were that it was really upsetting to you because it I think I felt at that time that you didn't really have very many people in your life at that point who you could trust,
4: oh, I didn't have I didn't have hardly anybody. My whole family moved out of town. I had no family at all. I, let's see. I moved out the day I graduated from high school. Mm-hmm. And I was seventeen cause I started a year early. i had I just wanted out. see, that's I had found out that I got the scholarship. Mm-hmm. I packed up that night.
7: Why did you want to get out so bad?
4: Because my family was dysfunctional. But my mom, it was pretty
8: bad. Uh-huh.
4: The girl that I lived with, at that time she was taking a lot of drugs. Uh-huh. And her boyfriend. And every time I would come home, they would always try to get me to Take drugs with them or something, and I, I really didn't do it much at all. Uh-huh. And uh, it was really, it was, it was tough to come home. And I, I guess I must have been suffering a little bit. I missed, I really missed my little brothers and my little sister, and they were gone, you know. And uh, I was, I guess, maybe trying to substitute.
7: I think maybe that's one of the reasons that I remember that we remember you so fondly though is because I think it worked both ways. I think that we felt if that did make you feel closer to us I think that we we responded. In a...
4: Well, I was desperately I guess I was looking for a family really. But I mean it, <laughs> if only you knew you probably wouldn't have hired me. But I mean it, people are complicated. Now what I really wanted to do was spend more time with your mom and dad. But I was terrified. I mean I I just couldn't I couldn't do it. I was too shy. So a lot of times, I thought they were asking me to stay longer and talk, and I would just run out.
7: I'm sure they were.
4: (laughs) And they probably thought, what's wrong with her? But I just couldn't do it.
7: So you sort of talked to us instead, it sounds like.
4: Yeah, I was comfortable around kids because, you know, I had kids in my family. (laughs)
7: Every time the subject of her hard times came up, I'd hear a subtle hesitancy in Susan's voice. At first I thought it was embarrassment, but that wasn't it exactly. It wasn't until we'd been talking for hours that I realized what it was. She was waiting for the other shoe to drop. She hadn't forgotten that her past had happened. She'd just forgotten that I'd witnessed part of it. And her fear, it became clear, the one that had been gnawing at her our entire conversation, was that I was calling to say she'd damaged me by exposing me to it.
4: I don't think I was too kind back then, because uh, there was a lot of turmoil in my life and in my family, and uh, that's what my fear is, that I might have had some kind of negative impact on people. Uh, And I know, probably, I did on a couple people, but they were my age, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, you just want to remember, yeah, I was a babysitter, the kids love me, blah blah blah, (laughs) but uh, I would be devastated (laughs) if I heard anything different.
7: There are parts of your past you don't want to go back to, and parts of yourself you don't want to go back to. And for Susan Jordan, the year for life that I remember is the year she'd just as soon forget. And it turns out, I'd also done my best to forget what I was like that year. I didn't think of myself this way at all, but Susan Jordan reminded me, in the gentlest terms possible, when I was nine, I was anxious and bookish. I was kind of uptight.
4: Not to seem as an insult, but I just kept thinking, these kids don't know how to play. When I went to your rooms, it didn't seem like you had a whole lot of toys. I I hope I've got this right, but it just seems like uh, there were mostly books and more educational things. I mean, I remember you had planets in your room and uh, Mm -hmm. chemistry sets. And I didn't remember that Kate had hardly any dolls. You didn't seem um, quite as playful as other kids that I had babysat, just more serious in general. So mainly I think that's what I did was try to play.
7: Perhaps the most amazing thing about this whole story is how little our memories had deceived us about each other, even if they had deceived us about ourselves. As Susan said at one point, Each of us remembered what we needed to about the other. I needed to remember the part of Susan that she doesn't think about much, her toughness in the face of hardship. She said she mostly remembered a side of my family that I just take for granted, that it was calm in our house, that there were books, there wasn't much fighting.
4: It was the first time in my life where I had ever seen that people lived differently than Mm -hmm. the way I lived. And that's what I decided I wanted for myself.
7: You can try to return to childhood by looking at photos, or visiting the old neighborhood, or listening to recordings. Or you can find someone who knew you back then, someone you haven't seen since. They still carry within themselves a picture of you that's unclouded by the years in between. They'll remember you better than you remember yourself. And you can do the same thing for them. Alex Bloomberg.
8: Saturday And when I grew I drew impressions of you When you were away You were my babysitter I wonder if you knew I
0: loved you Eck 4 Every day I forget something else Let's end our program today with one of the ideas we began it with. Remember Kayla, the seventh grader who is already aware of how she cannot remember her own past? Well, this very idea comes up in a novel by Nicholson Baker, a really great and unusual novel called The Everlasting Story of Nori. The book is told from the point of view of a nine-year-old named Nori, who at some point talks about how hard it is to remember things. Actress Michelle Trachtenberg reads a brief passage for us.
6: That afternoon, Nori tried to reconstruct every tiny detail of the international Chinese school in her mind. She couldn't even remember all the kids in the class. She remembered one very nice girl named Steffi, who left later on, who had a birthday party at her swimming pool, where Nori had floundered into the deep end and had gotten about a gallon and a half of water in her lungs, and thrown up a tiny bit on the grass. She gave Steffi a pair of tiny glass slippers, wrapped up in probably the best wrapping paper she had ever drawn. She still thought about those glass slippers. They were paperweights that a glass made, but they worked as real doll shoes. They were amazingly wonderful. It disturbed Nori very much to think that all she was going to know about what happened in her life was not very much at all. You can only really remember the things that happened when you were an older child, and the things that happened to you now, that is yesterday or the day before yesterday or late last week. You live your life always in the present. And even in the present, this day, dozens and hundreds of little tiny things happen. So many that by the end of the day, you can't make a list of them. You lose track of them unless something reminds you. Say someone says, remember when you dropped your ruler this morning? And you do remember. But then that is lost in the tangle. Now, Some things you can just accept that you're not going to have the slightest chance of remembering. It would be nice, but you know that it would be basically impossible. For instance, being in your mother's womb, as it's called. Some people thought babies could remember that. Nori one morning asked little guy if he could remember being tucked away in mommy's belly long ago, and he said, yes. He said, it had all things there in she's tummy. It had things that were called steam trains. It was filled with they. Filled with steam trains, city of Truro, lord of the isles, the mallard. Pictures with steam trains and toy ones and jumping things. Filled, filled with they. Well, of course there weren't toy trains in Nori's mother's womb unless maybe he was remembering the small intestine chuffing around. Maybe he was remembering a freight train of food being digested going around and around him. But probably not. Still, Nori thought it would be nice if you could think back at least to the age of three. It shouldn't be impossible. Three was older than little guy, and little guy could understand an amazing number of things. But Nori couldn't go back that far, really, except for a few scribs and scraps. She remembered being eight and back into being seven, and she went pretty much back to five, and then it teetered a little bit. She only remembered her fourth birthday party A mermaid party because she had watched the tape of it a number of times on TV. One thing, though, she made a point of remembering and passing on to her older self. Every year that she got a year older, she said to her parents, Remember when I was five, I said I was five going on six? Remember when I was six, I said six going on seven? When I was seven, I'd be going seven on eight, then going on eight on nine. Well, now I'm going nine on ten. So each year, the list of years got a little longer. But she remembered the earlier times that way by saying the list over. Another thing she made sure to bring along every year with her for a long time was the memory that there were many, many little amounts of money that she had found in the car and thought could be hers, but maybe not. Or times her parents had bought her a doll outfit or something when she told them she would reimburse them later, when they got home with her own money. Or gifts she bought other people with her own money, but borrowing it from her parents since she'd forgotten her purse. She would skip a week, not thinking to it, then still remember it and bring it into the next week. Then skip a week, then bring it over. Finally, she couldn't keep the amount in her head because it had been added onto and subtracted from so much, and it began to pull at her. And she thought, I know, I'll pay them a hundred dollars when I grow up, and that will surely make up for anything I borrowed along the way. Then she didn't have to keep track of that.
0: Michelle Trachtenberg, who plays Buffy's little sister and a portal and a key on the TV show Buffy the Vampire Slayer, reading an excerpt from Nicholson Baker's Everlasting Story of Nori. But it's a long, long while from May to December. Well, our program was produced today by Jonathan Goldstein and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Blue Shevany, Starley Kine, Aaron Yankee, and Annie Baxter, senior producer Julie Snyder, consigliere Sarah Val. production help from Todd Bachman. Lost and Found Sound is produced with funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thanks to Jim Anderson. The executive producers of Lost and Found Sound are the Kitchen Sisters, Nikki Silva and Davia Nelson, and Jay Allison. Musical help today from Mr. John Connors. Special thanks today to Lawrence Weschler, Lacey Kine, Craig Damwauer, and Anahid Alani. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our show has been provided by the Capital Group Companies, investing for individuals and institutions throughout the world, and sponsor of the American Funds Group of Mutual Funds. And from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago, WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia, who, you know, he tells me he has played Japan too. He swears.
5: I'd forgotten what it was to um, have the audience right there. i Glass.
0: Back next week with more stories of this American life.
5: These
2: golden days I'd
0: spend with you
8: PRI, Public Radio International.